Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with the wildfire situation, especially on Vancouver Island, that key highway closure there. Also, we're going to get an update on that extremely popular electric bike rebate program we told you about on yesterday's show. The waiting list there now. Can you still get that rebate? Let's discuss now with my guest, BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Minister, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, first let's talk about the, the Cameron Bluffs wildfire on Vancouver Island that has cut off highway access to Tofino, Yuclulet, other communities. What is the status of this fire and the highway access? Yeah, so yesterday we announced that not this weekend, but the following weekend, we will have Highway 4 reopened. Uh, but it will also have some constraints around the Cameron um, Lake Bluffs uh, rather site um, on the on the highway. It's it, it's going to be down to single lane alternating traffic, so it won't return to perfect functioning capacity because um, for a few kilometers at least it will be single lane alternating traffic. So there will be queuing. You know, in, in peak season, you get about fifteen thousand vehicles a day on that route. So we'll we'll do our best to get everybody up there. We'll also keep the alternate route open the entire time because there's some people that are using that commercial vehicles are getting through we've got it fully staffed we've got uh, um, piloted convoys going through there now four times a day with with commercial traffic and there's about a thousand vehicles a day using the alternate route so we'll keep that open i was just looking at the size of this particular fire it doesn't look particularly large relative to other fires but is the problem here debris and like falling burned logs rolling onto the highway like what is the issue there yeah that's exactly the problem uh debris rocks um you know large chunks of tree uh even yesterday uh some of the people that were looking at the geotechnical conditions of the slope uh were noticing that you know inside the hollow of the trees some of the roots were burning still on fire so there's still fire suppression activity to a minor degree, uh, it's now about tree removal. You know, there have been lots of kind of like fist-sized rocks falling onto the highway. So when we get this open in that area that I mentioned that will be single-lane single, single lane alternating traffic, there will be like a, a mesh kind of net as well as, um, you know, an entire lane will have a median barrier placed around it to, to catch any falling debris, and only the outer lane will be in use with those uh, safety measures in place. What is the but condition? We can, we can probably monitor. Uh, sorry, I was just go ahead, Minister. We, we can probably monitor that for a few weeks, yeah. and then we'll remove all that and have it fully reopened. But the partial reopening will be uh, uh, very good for Port Alberni, Tofino, Yuclid. Yeah. What is the condition of the highway itself? Like, does it need to be repaired? 
in any any sections? It's not it's not too bad actually. Uh, there there will be some minor repairs. Uh, some outer barrier was knocked over. There's been a ton of debris falling on it, um, but nothing that has really, uh, uh, to my knowledge, I've had no reports that the roadbed is is significantly damaged in any way. So there might be some minor patching and this and that, but uh, no, it's it's it, it will be usable when we deem it safe to do so. What can you say to the residents of these communities that have been cut off in that highway access, forced to take that long detour along a, a hazardous logging yeah. road? I mean, there's a lot of small businesses suffering here as the tourism season starts to ramp up. What, what can you say to them? Well, what I would say is um, local government, First Nations government, have been absolutely vital in getting accurate, up-to-date information out. Um, Drive BC will have up-to-date information on on highway reopening. We'll obviously make public announcements. <clears throat> um, but Chambers of Commerce and others have been uh, the voice of business saying which supplies are getting low. So obviously fuel has been a priority, groceries. Um, that that convoy route that we have, though, things are getting through. Save on Foods has their trucks going in and out of there. The Co-op Federation has refrigeration trucks going in and out. So we're making sure that this, the sh- store shelves aren't bare. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while, uh, we, we face a, a shortage. You know, pharmaceuticals and prescriptions, for example, the pharmacies uh, up in that area, we're starting to run low and they coordinated through the Ministry of Health. So everybody's playing their part. Um, we're also hoping and we're hearing that some of the regional airlines and maybe even some of the major ones that have got a good airport in Tofino might be offering or contemplating offering discount flights um, as an alternative to uh, the alternate route, which is quite long and not for every driver, let's put it that way, or every yeah. vehicle. Yeah, because what the, that alternate route is what gravel logging road, correct? It's gravel. Like some of it is really well graded and quite drivable, but you know it's a ninety kilometer stretch and it takes on average three and a half to four hours. So you can, you know, your your average speed there is twenty twenty five kilometers. It's windy. Um, there's some steep parts. It's not for everyone, and that's why we're asking people just you know make this route if it's essential travel. What are the chances of government assistance for the businesses that are impacted there? I, I know you you talked a little bit about maybe Ottawa helping out. Yeah. Well. I think there is some national consideration. The the uh, this is going to be the worst wildfire season in a century. That's that's something that the prime minister mentioned earlier. Uh, we've got international firefighters from you know a lot of southern hemisphere countries coming up here to help us combat these. Uh, you know, Nova Scotia. I, I just honestly can't remember ever hearing the significant wildfires in Nova Scotia, um, Ontario, Quebec. So it's a national problem. There's obviously a lot of communities similar to the west side of Vancouver Island that, you know, rely to a significant extent on tourism for employment and income uh, that would be in the same situation. So I think it's a national discussion, and we've certainly reached out to Ottawa to see uh, whether uh, there'd be consideration for some business relief, given that it's coming just as we start the peak of the uh, season. Speaking of BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, Minister, while I have you here, let me ask you about a, a story we discussed on yesterday's show, and that is this very popular program you rolled out recently for rebates for electric bikes. So up to $1,400 for a potential rebate if you buy an electric bicycle. I'm taking a look at the government's website on this program here now, this big button on the homepage, Join the Wait List. You'll be, yeah. you'll be, con- we'll contact you if space in the rebate program becomes available. We're only, what, two weeks into this program. What's happened here? 
Um, it's been wildly successful beyond uh, what we predicted. That's that's what's happened. So we're you know making some determinations inside government. Uh, how do we renew and sustain this rebate program? What are we going to do? And I'd be happy to come back on your program when we figure that out. But <clears throat> it really exceeded our expectations, Mike. Um, in essence, we changed the program we already had. It used to be you could get a, a good, generous e-bike rebate if you traded in a, a, an old clunker vehicle, the, the, the Scrap It program. Yeah. And in fact, the Scrap It Society is administering this new grant program. But we were only getting about, towards the end of that program, 20 a month. So we, we expected this would be a much more robust, interesting program for more people. Uh, we geared it towards um, lower-income British Columbians, and the data we have shows that about 84% of those who've been given a grant uh, fall into that category. But, um, man, was there ever a lot of demand for the program, and it, uh, it shut our website down on day one for a, a period of time. We got it back up and running, and that's where we're at with the wait list. And I... You know, just to encourage people to stay on that wait list, people have 30 days, those who've been approved for the rebate, to make that purchase. If they don't, they get dropped off the list and uh, the wait, somebody on the wait list uh, moves up and is eligible for the grant. So there is going to be some some churn and some movement, we predict, and we're going to have to figure out how we um, reboot the grant program uh, for more applicants. How many applications have you received? I know it's over 20,000. It could be over 25,000, I think. And we, we'd, we predicted that we would have 6,000. Um, so it, it, okay. it, it's, it's greatly in excess of what we predicted. So it's, it's kind of a good problem to have because I think what's happening here is that the e-bike revolution was happening all on its own. You know, the word of mouth about how pleasant it is to ride these things, the technology, the battery packs are really good. The, the distances you can travel, like it's, it's, it's really made commuter cycling to work uh, possible for a, a much larger segment of our population. This is what we want to do in terms of our climate goals is, is shift people out of, you know, primarily single occupant vehicles uh, emitting uh, GHGs onto, uh, you know, clean transportation. And uh, e-bikes, I think, are going to be a huge feature. And we've been funding infrastructure. We've got multi-use pathways being built in communities right across British Columbia, We've got this grant program. It is a bit of a perfect storm in terms of incentives to to uh, get out of the car and get on the e-bike. And we did a lot of research with a, a team at UBC that showed that, in actual fact, people who are buying e-bikes um, are using them um, for uh, commuting and cycling. So they are displacing uh, vehicle kilometers traveled in our province, and that's what we want to have happen. Last question for you. Can you assure people who are clicking this join the wait list button on the website here and they're going on the wait list to get this rebate for an e-bike, will they, can you assure them they will get the rebate? Yeah, well, I would encourage them, you know, if you're interested in purchasing, purchasing an e-bike and you're interested in the rebate program, by all means, um, uh, join that program. We're going we're gonna to figure out uh, how we're going to... Uh, make more people eligible because it's, as I said, wildly oversubscribed at this point in time. And but it sounds, it sounds like some people could be out of luck if they didn't get in here early. Um, it's possible. Uh, you know, <clears throat> you have, from a public policy perspective, you have to look at, um, are you nudging people to make a good consumer choice that they wouldn't otherwise make? Um, you know, we made some changes to our electric vehicle rebates uh, for cars uh, based on the fact that you know, people with higher incomes, we're going to buy the car anyway. You don't need to, you know, incentivize that. Um, 
and and luxury electric vehicles do not need to be incentivized. So I think we'll take some lessons learned from the early days of this program and uh, and, and reconfigure it and uh, see what we can do to help those people that are sitting on the waiting list and, and really do uh, want to buy an e-bike. And the price, because it is quite a bit higher than a regular bicycle, uh, is a barrier for them to getting to getting in on it. Minister, busy days for you. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. You heard my discussion there with the transportation minister about the wildfire situation in the province, especially the fire that has cut off highway access to communities on Vancouver Island. Let's go back in time here now. The 2021 wildfire situation, the devastating heat dome. And it's been nearly two years since the village of Lytton burned. The rebuilding process in this community, painfully slow. Why? Why is it taking so long to rebuild the community of Lytton nearly two years later? Got Tyler Olson standing by, Fraser Valley Current reporter. I highly recommend his feature story on Lytton and the rebuilding process there. Give me a follow on Twitter. You'll find the link there. Let's have a listen first here to a resident of Lytton, Britannia, Glasgow, on an earlier show. And talking about how she, she feels like people there feel like they've been forgotten. Have a listen. I've heard more than one person tell me that they think that no one cares about the people here. It breaks my heart because I love Lytton and I love the people here. And it just seems like we all just want to be together. We want something to be done. We want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want some sort of direction to come in, someone to come in and say, hey, okay, this is the plan. Okay. Well, let's talk about that plan now and what's happening with the rebuilding in Lytton with my guest, Tyler Olson, reporter, Fraser Valley Current. Tyler, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And congratulations on this story, which I recommend to the listeners to to check out on this. Uh, Let's go back, first of all, 2021. What let's talk about what sparked that fire, because I remember at the time there was there was a lot of thought about whether a train going through the town had sparked had sparked the fire. Did they ever did they ever come to a conclusion on the cause? No, they haven't come to a conclusion on the cause. There was an investigation into uh, whether a train had sparked the fire. Yeah. That investigation essentially came back with the finding that they couldn't find evidence that it did. Uh it also didn't find evidence that didn't. We really don't know um, two years later. And, and and it was so hot at the time, too, that it would not have taken much of anything to have uh, have started a fire that, that would have quickly grown at that speed. Yeah. We're approaching the two-year anniversary of this devastating event in this community. And I know, did you take a drive out there yesterday, I think? Yeah, I drove through yes, there yesterday. Okay. okay. What, what can you describe? What did you see there? It's, it's, it looks pretty much the same as it has for the last year and a bit since all the uh, the wreckage has been ta- was taken down. There have been, over the last couple of months, a couple of uh, modular buildings going up. There has been some uh, more progress over the last couple of months since I actually published uh, this story. But there's still no homes. There's still no construction actually underway um, to actually build anything of any permanence. There's... Uh, piles of dirt on various roads. That dirt has been um, removed from the ground for because it uh, has con- it contains or was being 
suspected contain contaminants or archaeological remains. And so you have these large piles of dirt all around town, and that's about it. Okay. The big question here is why why is it taking so long? I mean, you touched on some of the hazardous materials that have been cited as, as a potential barrier for a quick reconstruction archaeological concerns like is that is that the are these the reasons it's been so slow they are part of the issue it was always going to take longer probably than people expected because there were more archaeological um findings than anybody had had expected people have lived on that site for something like 10,000 years and we didn't really have a grasp of kind of what that meant and what that would mean when people started digging in the ground the contamination was um, also just kind of to be expected, but a lot of work there. There's also just the fact that um, all that work's taking place uh, quite a ways out of, uh, quite a ways away from any large built-up places. So it's hard to get workers out there. Um, and those have proved challenging. The atmospheric river has proved challenging. And then there's just the fact that you drive through there often and just not many people are working on it. They just don't have the manpower or they haven't put the manpower into it to do it in a speedy way. Um, and then there's the whole government side of things, uh, which is when the fire burnt down Lytton, it burnt down Lytton. It wiped out both the village office and the place where the village office stored all its backup records. Um, so that has, has created a large bureaucratic issue. It also wiped out the homes of all the councillors um, and the uh, and many of the staff as well. And so you've had this hollowing out of the entire kind of human infrastructure of the village at a time when it was needed most. And and unfortunately in British Columbia we have a system where, and I, I heard that it usually works. It usually works that the the province assigns gives money and resources to a municipality to rebuild a rebuild homes and rebuild neighborhoods, and then that municipality takes the lead. But in Lytton, you've got a tiny village without the capacity to do that, and um, they've been kind of delegated resources and money by prov- uh, the province and federal government without, um, over the last two years, really having the 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 human capacity to to make um, to rebuild the town in a speedy manner. Speaking to Tyler Olson, Fraser Valley Current, highly recommend his reporting on rebuilding Lytton, the very, very slow process here. When you, I know you spoke to a lot of people who lived in the town. What did they, what did they say to you? Are they frustrated? Like, what, what's going through their hearts and minds when you talk to them? Yeah, I haven't spoken to anybody really in the last couple of months, but I've, I've kept an eye on on, on various. I've watched the council meetings and you've heard online and and elsewhere that people are, I I get the sense that people are now just resigned to this is just how it goes. It just takes long and and the process isn't going to happen anytime soon. And you you really got the sense of this more, more like a year ago or a year and a half ago where you, there were all these promises being made that rebuilding was going to happen. And it was dawning on residents, it seemed a lot quicker than outsiders, that nothing was happening in a speedy manner. There wasn't a sense of urgency. And yeah. and the speed with which residents 
associated some value because residents thought, realized that if the, the the village wasn't rebuilt in a speedy way, they'd have to move up, move on. They got the perception that outsiders and government and those who held the fate of Lytton in their hands didn't really perceive it that way or didn't really realize what the delays were doing to the village. I remember in the immediate aftermath of this uh, this tragic fire here, then-Premier John Horgan talked about the plan to rebuild the community. He said he wanted to build uh, he wanted to build a community of the future. It would be a modern village that would withstand uh, future heat events. There, so there was a lot of indication in the early days that this would be a high priority to rebuild this village. Why, what do most people in the community think is like? Do, do most people have insurance if their house burned down? Do they have insurance? Do they want to rebuild? Do they have the capacity to rebuild, but they just can't? Well, the, the, insur- the insurance thing has been a whole other sticking point because the insurance companies have, have previously, because many people do have insurance, others have been um, helped by uh, financial assistance through the government. But the insurance companies especially have said, have they have their rules and they say, okay, we will give you X amount of money to rebuild your home. You just have to start rebuilding within two years. And so many residents have seen that timeline come and approach and now look like it's going. I, I believe that specific issue may be resolved by now. But all along the way, there have been these, these hurdles where the insurance companies are asking for X and then to deliver on whatever that may be, um, governments have to approve certain processes. And there's just a bureaucratic, it's just a bureaucratic nightmare every step of the way because you have each piece of paperwork has to go through another set of hands and that delays everything. And so you have residents and themselves, um, some are waiting, some are still hoping to rebuild. Others have taken their insurance money and uh, gone to other places in BC or elsewhere and started new lives there. And then you have people who have hoped to rebuild and as they've been waiting to hope to rebuild, their lives have moved on and some people have even died waiting to um, rebuild their homes. So the delays cause, the delays aren't just time, it, it, it causes real stress and it causes real damage to people. What about temporary housing? I, I know that this was thought at the time that they could build some temporary housing there to get people back into the village. Did that ever happen? Did they ever build any temporary structures for people to live in? The Lytton First Nation did has created temporary structures for people because the fire went through the village of Lytton and then right adjacent to the village of Lytton Core, there's a, a, a First Nation reserve um, yeah. that was uh, had had significant damage to homes there. And because the First Nation is governed through federal laws and has access to federal funding and then also didn't rec- didn't need to go through certain um, other steps, um, they were able to create temporary modular housing just on the outside of town um, on another reserve that they, that they have. The village of Lytton hasn't created temporary housing that's const- that's regularly been something they've talked about but they haven't yeah. found a property or they haven't last i checked um found a property in which to set th- those up and at this point it's 
potentially less of a priority because it's two years later and the people who would have needed that a year or two ago have have found housing or moved on or are, are getting close to rebuilding themselves. So the answer is no. And the province has said that they assist Lytton in setting up temporary housing, but Lytton has had such, um, their, their capacity is so low that they, Lytton hasn't been able to find a solution and the province hasn't taken the reins and, and actually done something themselves in a way that would have helped people. Okay, Tyler, we continue to follow this uh, story. Congratulations on your work on it. I recommend your your reporting on this uh, story. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Michael. All right, talking about the village of Lytton, nearly two years after the devastating fire that flattened that village, the rebuilding effort painfully slow. You heard my conversation there, Tyler Olson. Uh, the reporter has been covering that story so well. Let's check in with Jackie Taggart now, BC United MLA, Fraser Nicola. Very pleased to welcome her back. Jackie, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. And this has been a high priority for you, the rebuilding effort in that, in that village. What are your thoughts on how painfully slow this has been? Like, I don't think there's been any houses or businesses rebuilt there. Not a one. And uh, one. hard to believe after two years... And the fact that <clears throat> we we feel like we're forgotten, totally um, been left to swing in the wind because it seems like there is no priority whatsoever um, from government to take a look at where it's at right now and how to assist in moving it forward. Uh, the capacity, I, I really appreciate the reporting done by Tyler. Because yeah. the people I talk to in Lytton say we, we feel totally abandoned and forgotten. Yeah, and we talked about some of the reasons there with, uh, with Tyler. You know, he mentioned that the discovery of hazardous materials in the initial cleanup effort. How big of a challenge has that been? I mean, this is, I mean, that shouldn't be like rocket science to deal with something. Okay, we, I mean, there's some hazardous material in these burned down buildings, but man, should that really stifle a rebuilding effort for this long? Your thoughts? My, my thoughts are that the province better learn a lot from this experience because right from day one, uh, when the premier of the day announced that they would be there, they would have people's backs, I indicated to the, um, to the government that we needed a team of experts. We needed a team to go in and to recognize that um, there is limited capacity at a small village level, and they needed the expertise that the government had. And uh, the decision was um, to not do that, and we waited and waited and waited. When we talk about, you know, the processes that Lytton has been, um, has had to go through, um, where I, I said to many ministers, who has the expertise here? Who is interpreting these kinds of scientific and very technical reports and then putting the action plan together? Because we have a small village which um, has a, a council that is elected locally who all ran for their lives on the day yeah. of the fire. And we expect them to pick themselves up and rebuild a community, 
um, totally unrealistic expectations, and we see the results of that. Jackie, we just have one minute left. What should be the top priority? Like, if you guys were in charge, what would you be? What would you guys be doing right now on this? The top priority is how do we get shovels in the ground and how do we get people home? This is an absolute shameful um, display of unbelievable bureaucracy, lack of leadership from a provincial government, and my people are paying the price for that. They want to go home. And as Tyler said, I mean, we've had a number of people who have halfway waiting to go home. And when you hear people, you know, with that emotion in their voice, I just want to go home. And there's no clear process from um, senior government, and you don't know who to turn to. I've tried to figure out who actually is in charge. I've asked that question over and over. Who do I speak to in government that can make the decisions? Okay. Can't, Can't find out who it is. Jackie, I appreciate your continuing advocacy on this file. Thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the world of professional sports now and some big stories in the headlines, including the surprise merger between the PGA Golf Tour and Live Golf, the Saudi Arabian-backed rival golf league there, and... The absolute explosion in sports gambling. Have you noticed the saturation advertising for gambling on sports now? How could you not? If you've been watching the NHL or NBA playoffs, it seems like it's all gambling all the time. Got a great guest standing by here, Declan Hill, one of the top experts. First, on sports gambling, have a listen to this report now from NBC News. Sports betting, with ads practically running on a loop on TV, is now legal in 30 states. And upwards of 90% of it is happening online and on phones with apps from companies like DraftKings. As soon as we opened up and, and launched that mobile app, we saw the traffic spikes. The floodgates opened in 2018, when the Supreme Court struck down a federal sports gambling ban. The NFL commissioner once opposed legalized sports gambling. The integrity of our game is number one. We will not compromise on that. Today, the NFL has three official sportsbook partners as well as four approved sportsbook operators. Okay, very pleased to welcome to the show Declan Hill now. Declan is an investigative journalist. He's an expert on match fixing and corruption in sports. University of New Haven, author of the book The Fix soccer and organized crime very pleased to welcome him declan thanks a lot for coming on today uh hey thanks brother those are both important topics to discuss so happy to do so okay i, lo- I love that you're here you're all- it's always awesome to have you here let's start with sports gambling first of all it's really interesting to go back and you hear the uh the nfl commissioner there saying oh the integrity of our game is paramount there's very anti-gambling for so long now it's like all gambling all the time when you watch sports here what happened <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. I know it's a serious topic, but I mean, uh, I'm, I'm going to join the rest of our listeners and just laugh. Like they sold out. That's what happened. They saw the cash and they yeah. sold out. And it's really ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's a serious topic because in my opinion, North American sports leagues, be it the NHL, be it NBA, be it NFL, whatever, um, are dancing with the devil here. I mean, they really have gotten themselves into a position of stupid greed. 
because it all seems fine. You know, every time you do a deal with the devil, everything seems fine at first, but it's going to come back and it's going to bite them hard because, you know, how can any reasonable sports fan be watching a game and the guy drops the ball when he shouldn't and not have a doubt in their mind going, was that by accident or is that prearranged script? And as soon as reasonable fans can do that, that's really the death of their sport because why are you tuning in if you cannot have absolute faith in the product? And the problem is that how can a reasonable fan of professional sports be looking at the close links between professional sports and gambling companies? Heck, the stadiums are starting to be named after gambling companies. The, the athletes are taking direct sponsorship from these bookmakers. Like, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. You, you, as a reasonable person, you're looking at it and going, Gee, I, I, I don't know, but this seems way too close. And that's the danger. Yeah, you've written extensively on corruption in sports and, and match fixing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you think now with the proliferation of gambling like this, if professional sports around the world is just wide open to this type of corruption. Like you mentioned, like a, if a guy drops a pass because – you can bet on every single aspect of a game now, like like how many passes an individual player might catch in a game. So if you see a, a player is, fumbles the ball, how Mike, do you Mike, how do you know? I'm just getting. I'm just Mike. I just got off the um, you know from a, a consultation with the Brazilian government. They phoned me up and said, "You got to fly down here because you know we're having a major scandal with our first division. This is Brazilian soccer. You know, renowned around the world. They're like the Canadians uh, in terms of hockey." You know, Brazilians are renowned as the best soccer players in the world. And I'm like saying to their government, forget your first division. Forget your, your premier league down there. You've got a problem of fixing a 15-year-olds. Like the globalized sports gambling market has created a tsunami of match fixing around the world. I'm also doing some work with, um, you know, a group looking at the NCAA, which is wide open for fixing. And I just pulled off a, a, a gambling site in Gabon, Africa. Mm. in French, and they're offering Tier 3 NCAA games from, like, you know, it's a Chinese company in Africa, and they're, you know, they're betting on these small, obscure college sports, you know, Tier 3 sports. This is how prevalent and large this $1.69 trillion market is. Yeah, I think the potential there, obviously, for corruption is is quite obvious is there a way to make it safer because you know what you and i've talked about this before i i tend to think of yep. gambling on a on a game is it's kind of here to stay you know like and it's see gambling in some ways that most people is one of the sort of small pleasures in life if you do it responsibly so i don't think we're ever going to get rid of it can we make it can we make it more Yes, uh, I don't you know, can. less, you, you less can. open like, you to can corruption. Start by having an educated, responsible discussion. I'm a massive fan of legalized gambling, as I am a massive fan of legalized alcohol drinking. But everyone knows alcohol is addictive. I mean, there's yeah. no one who doesn't know that it's not addictive. And you, you, as soon as you start that discussion about, hey, should you, have a, should you be able to walk into a bar at 8 in the morning? Should you be able to walk into a bar that's close to a public school? Whatever, people are saying, hey, no, we need regulation because alcohol is addictive. Sports gambling is desperately and deeply addictive. There have been studies coming out of Europe now that the new form of gambling, this thing called frictionless gambling, basically the apps on your phone that means people are walking around with the equivalent of a casino in their back pocket, are 
many times more addictive than heroin. They wire the brain. The, 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 the better is just pressing a bunch of buttons and getting you know, you know, dopamine highs. And, and yeah. that is addictive. And we've got to start discussing this. We've also got to start discussing how athletes who are surrounded and are inundated with gambling and bookmaking are the worst gambling addicts in the world. Everything that makes a top-level athlete good at their sport, you know, they never give up. They're obsessed. They keep chasing. They're going to overturn the odds no matter what makes them suck at gambling. And there's a long raft of really top athletes who have lost all their money that they ever earned as salary, all their sponsorship money, are deeply in debt thanks to gambling. I mean, you start with Michael Jordan, who goes to Wayne Rooney, and Michael Owen, who's top soccer players out of England, Paul Merson, Gianni Buffon, who was the top national goalkeeper in Italy for over a decade, played for their top team, Juventus, there. One million euro in debt to gambling. So it means all their money that they earned lost. So you've got to start those discussions. You've got to start the proper, effective regulation of an addictive, a deeply addictive pursuit. What about professional athletes who are endorsing and advertising some of these sports wrong. books and some wrong. of the commercials? Wrong. And what do you think of that? Wrong. Just wrong. Just wrong. Just utterly, appallingly wrong. Anyone doubts it? Think of them, um, you know, endorsing and advertising publicly another addictive product like tobacco or alcohol. Again, I think alcohol and tobacco should be legal. Uh, I think gambling should be legal, but let's get some proper regulation. Anyone doubts this? You know, like take a look at your 14-year-old son when a hockey player says anything. You know, a hockey player can come out and say, I love purple shirts. Next day, your 14-year-old son is going to be wearing a purple shirt. I mean, that is the power that these guys have on young people. Again, I just finished working with a group out of, excuse me, not working. I was interviewing a group out of the UK called Gambling With Lives. Those are parents whose children have committed suicide thanks to sports gambling. Uh, one or two young people in England, excuse me, in United Kingdom a day commit suicide thanks to this. They just had an official coroner's report. Uh, on one of the, the, you know, the young men who killed himself. Yeah. Uh, and, and the coroner was quite frank. He's saying you know, the, the UK government is not regulating this properly. This caused this young person's death. The UK gambling regulation is way further ahead than Canadian gambling regulation. In Do Ontario, you think, it is an open market. Do you think, speaking of regulations, there should be a regulation against current players endorsing these betting sites? Like when you see a a former star like yes. Wayne Gretzky and endorsing sport, sports gambling. I guess that's one thing. But when you see Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews, like these current superstars in sports saying, get on board with bet, you know, bet 99, put your money down. Should current players be banned from endorsing gambling? Yes, it's wrong. Yeah. It's just, I yeah. mean, like no debate, no discussion. You know, if yeah. Connor was, was, you know, endorsing Marlboro cigarettes, everyone would be like, hey, buddy, you know, uh, we like smoking, but no, because you're going to have an impact on the young people to take up an addictive pursuit without proper education, without proper regulation. No, it's just wrong. And it's also adds into the discussion, the debate around integrity. People are watching a hockey you know, star, uh, and I'm not suggesting that the, the aforementioned guys would ever take a fix or a dive, but something happens. And you're like, uh, don't you take money from a betting company? And didn't you just save them a lot of money by missing that slap shot. Not that they would, but that yeah. would get into a reasonable fan's mind. 
and 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 the the credibility of the sport is in desperate danger then all right. Continuing my discussion now with Declan Hill, University of New Haven investigative journalist. He's an expert on match fixing, corruption in sports. His book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. Hey, Declan, let's talk about that other big story in the headlines here. The merger between the PGA Golf Tour and Live Golf, the rival league backed by Saudi Arabia. This is interesting because the PGA at one point seemed to be really digging in, fighting back against the Saudis, asking politicians in the United States to clamp down on on this Live Golf League because of Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Now, now we suddenly they're getting together, getting into bed together in a merger. What do you think of that? <laughs> Look, we began this interview by you making me laugh about the NFL and the North American <laughs> professional sports. Uh, you know, coming up with reasons for taking their cash. The PGA Golf Tour is doing exactly the same thing. So sure. they had all this big moral hubris last year. You know, they got a number of their players to stand up and talk about, you know, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist that was massacred by the, um, you know, Saudi government, by the human rights, by the sexual discrimination that goes on in that country, all this stuff. And then, ooh, oops, 11 and a half months later, well, we've been in secret negotiations and it uh, looks like we're merging with these guys. Like, uh, you know, if the fact is the, the Saudi government is throwing in trillions or billions of dollars to this, that's the reason why PGA Tour has changed their mind. Okay, money talks here, right? Like, and this comes down to money. Is this a case of if you can't beat them, you might as well join them? No, 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 no. Okay. I absolutely disagree. And it's something that I, I remember talking about with a true Canadian hero, a resident of um, Vancouver called Jeannie Semph, S-E-N-F-T. She was a figure skating judge back in the early 2000s when I really, you know, I was working the fifth estate and this really became my passion, which was cleaning up sports and the integrity of sports. She was, she was a top level figure skating judge and the Russian, the former Soviet countries were just cheating and corrupting and fixing major um, you know, you know, up up to and including the gold medal competitions for figure skating in uh, the Olympics. And I remember talking to her and other, uh, you know, North American figure skating experts, and and they made this point. They said, figure skating doesn't need these repressive governments. They need, you know, this mass TV audience. They need people to believe in the integrity of the sport. And since that time, figure skating has almost slipped you know outside of a few pockets of Can- canada and north america it's it's just nothing um the same thing i'm afraid is true about golf and soccer and all these sports that are rushing off into the embrace of the communist chinese and the qataris and the repressive saudis sports don't need those governments those mm. governments need sport to help sports watch their appalling regimes for the for our listeners who haven't been to saudi arabia it's like something out of a science fiction novel i mean until Two years ago, women were banned from driving. Women yeah. were banned from driving cars. I mean, that's how weird and autocratic and bizarre this is. So now the Saudis have got together with their international consultants, and they're like, oh, how do we clean up our image and yeah. you know, convince people who are really nice people? And this is the government. It's not the people of Saudi Arabia who are living under this oppressive regime. Saudi people are fantastic. But the government is like a wart on the face of international politics. Uh, you know, the, as I said in the in the preamble, they've killed journalists. Um, you know, it, all kinds of things. So they moved Let into me, boxing. They moved into esports. They moved into soccer, and of course, now they're moving into PGA Tour golf. 
Let me play a clip here for you. One of the top sports commentators in America, Stephen A. Smith, who thinks that this deal is actually good for golf and uh, we shouldn't be so self-righteous about it. Everyone's doing business with the Saudis. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. We could talk about the hypocrisy of Jay Monahan. That's a separate subject. But the fact that they're doing business with the Saudis says to me they're joining a long line of people who have no problem doing business with the Saudis. We had the president giving a fist bump with the Saudis. What the hell are we talking about? Stop the hypocrisy. It's about business. You're in America. It's a capitalistic society. Okay, it's classic Stephen A. Smith there. We just got a minute left here, Declan. He says, look, everyone's doing business with the Saudis. Why not the, why not the PGA Tour? Just sadly, we just got one minute left. Go ahead. Yeah, he's a creepy little cheerleader. I mean, he's the guy <laughs> who pretends that he loves sports, but here he is selling out the very integrity and moral code of sports. What does golf stand for? Does golf stand only for the holy dollar? Or is golf, and I, I speak to all our listeners who are golf lovers, what does that sport actually mean to you? And I bet you that every single one of our listeners loves, genuinely loves sport more than a character like Stephen A. Smith, who's just up there. You know, he's cheerleading for money people. That's what they pay those people to do. I mean, it's, it's, okay. it's a waste of time even listening to a character like that. I will, because I believe in debate, yeah. but he's just a cheerleader. And now the Global Sky Tracker weather. Mainly cloudy this afternoon. Windy, highs of 19. Clear tonight, lows of 11 and mainly sunny skies tomorrow. A high of 19, up to 22 inland. We will see a mix of sun and clouds Friday, highs of 21. In Coquitlam, it is 13 degrees and cloudy. Outside CKNW at Pacific Centre, it's 14 degrees. Global News Time is 11.34. I'm Erin Ubels. Picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. I get high with a little help from my friends. Okay, there you go. There's a listen to some of the best of the Beatles there, courtesy of Tim French. He does a great job putting those mashups together for sure. Now, how about this exciting news here now? Paul McCartney saying that there will be a new Beatles song released this year, and it will feature the vocals of John Lennon. Now, how is this possible? Well, McCartney telling the BBC that there is an unused demo featuring John Lennon, and they will use artificial intelligence to extract Lennon's vocals, create a new song. McCartney kids would be the last Beatles song. What do you think about that now? Boy, I got a great guest on this standing by, Piers Hemmingson. First, let's have a listen to McCartney here. Here he is speaking to the BBC. So when we came to make what will be the last Beatles record, it was a demo that John had um, that we worked on, and we just finished it up and be released this year. We were able to take John's voice and get it pure through this AI so that then we could mix the record as you would normally do, you know. So it, it gives you it gives you some sort of uh, leeway 
So there's a good side to it and then a scary side. And uh, we'll just have to see where that leads. Okay. All right. He says there's a good side and a scary side. Maybe maybe some Beatles fans that uh, would think maybe this well enough should be left alone. All right, let's talk about it with my guest now, Piers Hemmingson. Piers is one of the great experts on the Beatles. He's the author of the book, The Beatles in Canada, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Piers, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me. Okay, Piers, what do you think of this now here? A new Beatles song here being announced by Paul McCartney. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's it's great. Uh, we're excited. All Beatles fans are excited. But but when you use the word new, um, let's bear in mind that, that John recorded this demo uh, on a cassette tape in New York in 1979. And then, um, you know, Yoko gave the tape to... Uh, you know, the three three Beatles, they used to be called the Threedles, uh, in the 90s for their anthology project. And right. they did work on it. Uh, so I think what you're going to end up with is, is as you said in your intro, an extracted uh, Lennon vocal with, I'm assuming, 1990s, uh, you know, George, uh, Paul, and, and Ringo voices. Uh, I don't think you're going to get 2023 voices i could be wrong uh but i think uh it's exciting uh, it's not a rocker it, it's uh, a tune i think called now and then and yeah. allegedly the, the last words that that uh, john spoke to uh, paul when they met in 1976 were think of me now and then Oh, okay. Interesting. Now, this is, yeah, I, I believe that you are right. There's a lot of speculation here, Piers, that this is precisely the song that McCartney's yeah. referring to here, Now and Then. And this was a song uh, recorded on a demo by John Lennon in the 1970s, as you mentioned. Now, didn't George Harrison famously say that he thought this was, this song was rubbish? Well, I think he probably meant that the recording was rubbish because okay. uh, if it's if it's what I'm thinking of and what people are saying out there on the web that that this has got some background humming and uh, uh, his vocal is just not uh, as good as it could have been. So probably when they did "Free as a Bird" and "Real Love," uh, they they looked at this one, tried their best, and just said it just isn't you know up to it. Yeah, and Free as a Bird, that was a Beatles song that was released in the 1990s, part of that anthology project, right? So it, that's, this is sort of a similar sort of thing, right? They were going into the, into the vaults, finding these unused demos, try to clean it up and release a new song. They're basically kind of doing that again, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I think yeah. It's, it's what I would call unfinished business because they've already, if it's the same track, They've already had a swing at it with George, so they can correctly say that they will have all four Beatles on the song. Okay, okay, well, that's that's fascinating. Now you are a Beatles super fan. The Beatles in Canada, your definitive book. Um, you you obviously are, you're excited about this. What do you th like? I've heard the other side of it too, though. I've heard people saying, "Hang on a second here. We should just leave this in the vault the way it is." I mean. Lennon never released this. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe John Lennon didn't want this song to come out. What do you think of that argument? Uh, it's an argument, uh, <laughs> and what I would say is is <laughs> is that uh, you know God bless Paul because you know Paul has 
always had, you know, pretty high standard. And and what we saw with the Get Back, uh, you know, Peter Jackson documentary, yeah. uh, whenever they get involved with stuff, it's and especially lately, it's very good. And I would say that I had doubts about real love. I had doubts about Free as a Bird. I was living in the UK when, when those were released. Uh, and over time, I've come to really like them and treat them as, as official and proper, worthy Beatles songs. Okay, so you think those are real, real genuine Beatles songs, even though they were, I you know, obvious. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's part of the story. It's part of, you know, and if Paul says this is going to be the last one, I, I think we're going to have to believe him. Yeah. And do you think, like, the technology here has improved by leaps and bounds? Like, you mentioned the documentary film there by filmmaker Peter Jackson on uh, Get Back, and boy, that just blew everybody's socks off, right? The quality of that, they were able to clean up the, the, the audio there, they are able to clean up the video, and they just produced something that really blew people away when that was released. Do you think that's critical it, it, here? Like, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think that you're right. The technology has moved, you know, light, light speed from the 1990s when the anthology project was done uh, to 2023. There's a huge capability now i don't know whether it will be jeff lynn or giles martin doing uh the production i did hear a comment that there is one part of this recording if it's the same one where where john goes off key and whether you know somebody like giles martin will be able to to use some studio tools to uh to correct stuff like that i'm expecting that you know the beatles will you know, when I say Beatles, George, Ringo, and and Paul will add a will add a a bridge or a chorus. You know, the way they did for Real Love and uh, Free as a Bird. I think it will. You know, they'll make a you know something really good out of it. I I'm optimistic. So, so you think that it's possible that they could include maybe some George Harrison vocals on there too? I mean, they got some old George Harrison tape lying around as well. Or well, if it's the same track, uh, George, Paul, and Ringo tried it once uh, in okay. the 90s so i'm i'm just guessing that they wouldn't put it out as a beatles uh final single if george wasn't on it okay okay F fascinating last question for you here pierce what would you say yeah. to the doubters out there who would say oh man come on now this is something this is nothing but a cash grab here um well there's always doubters uh i would yeah. say you know for beatles fans you know we're still talking about them, and it's yeah. 2023, so I, I think that says a lot. Okay, well, I guess we'll judge it. We'll find out when it comes out. Piers, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.